Tonight's talk will be about mindfulness. Tomorrow night's talk will be about hindrances, which was announced earlier. And you'll have the tools to deal with the hindrances. We finished now, for those of you who just came, two days, two full days of practice. And it was obvious from talking with some of you today in the interview that the, the foundation laid by the previous retreat has really helped. The quality of stillness that has affected uh, probably most of you in coming into this retreat. There are so many forces at play that when we go into retreat, even though the idea of coming into retreat can be an obstacle because then we come loaded with our expectations, what we want to happen, uh, what we want to fix, uh, and a whole, a whole bevy of conscious and unconscious agenda that might be there. Uh, and inevitably, we get disappointed if we hold on to those attachments, if we hold on to this idea <clears throat> of what we want to do, or what we want to change, or what we want to fix. So it helps to understand many of these forces that come into play as supports for a real retreat. Uh, and by real retreat, that means where we really are able to surrender and let go <clears throat> and feel carried by the Dhamma. Feel carried by the practice itself. And at a certain point, you know, in finding our stride with it, we begin to be able to let go about the thoughts of, of, of our agendas, our expectations, uh, about having a goal or no goal, uh, and so forth, and rely more and feel more committed to the practice itself, and trust more in the fruits of the practice itself, and not our ideas about it. Uh, we opened with the uh, with our our um, our joining together in subscribing to a culture of non-harming. You know, just taking the precepts together, which has very reverberating effects uh, in the psyche when we practice. To 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 take precepts together, to follow sila, to make it our practice provides the gift of protection to ourselves and to others. That itself begins to make <clears throat> the mind feel and heart feel at ease, begin to relax. You know, we live in such a close community here for some time, and it just feels, it feels a little safer to know that we're, we're guarding ourselves and each other against, against any kind of harm. Uh, the generosity that comes from that, the spaciousness that comes from following the precepts, um, and the the foundation of the wondrous, uh, with the foundation of sila, that commitment to the wondrous uh, dhamma, the, the truth, the liberating truth itself. And with this with this sila comes the practice of uh, samadhi. Samadhi is the development of our heart, mind. In the Buddhist Pali language, the word used for meditation is bhavana, the root of which means to bring into being, 
bring into being, to cultivate, to develop. Specifically, what's being developed is, is a, what's called another uh, interpretation of bhavana, beautiful consciousness. And the qualities that make up this beautiful consciousness in the Buddhist psychology, they list around at least 25 mental states called uh, beautiful consciousness, beautiful states of consciousness or beautiful mental qualities that create these states of consciousness, such as uh, the Brahma-viharas, which we practice in the first retreat, loving-kindness, compassion, joy, equanimity, uh, and many others, confidence, uh, patience, uh, reverence, uh, respect, uh, qualities in the heart of, of uh, generosity, and uh, a wise concentration, uh, beginnings of wisdom that is intuitive, understanding, and so forth. The one quality of, the, of this samadhi practice, that is, in samadhi, the big, the big meaning of samadhi is the unified consciousness, that is, that is, uh, that is the bringing together of our consciousness or awareness from being distracted from being scattered over myriad concerns, where the mind-body begin to feel cohesive, like co a confluence of streams that come together into one river. And it actually feels that way. You begin to feel that kind of unification. That's what samadhi, the big meaning of samadhi means. And the elements of it are, are called right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. Uh, effort mean just the energy, the energy required to maintain a present time awareness. And mindfulness, which we'll be talking more about, but that um, it is that present time awareness. And the concentration is the capacity, uh, the capacity to maintain the staying power of the mind in the present moment. Samadhi. So, the, uh, sila is a foundation, again, with the quieting of the mind from not being so agitated by our commitment to non-harming. There comes the, uh, the beginning of the samadhi practice, where we begin to really feel that stillness arise. And then the samadhi is the foundation for what is called panya, or wisdom direct, intuitive illumination and understanding of things as they are. All this, all these three trainings, Sila, Samadhi, Panya, can be distilled down to a, a single incredible mental quality, and that is mindfulness itself. It's taught that even a single moment of pure mindfulness draws together all these beautiful mental states. The Brahma-viharas are there, the kindness and compassion, joy, equanimity, um, and faith and patience, reverence, respect, uh, uh, wholesome energy and concentration, wisdom. They're all drawn together, at least poised and harmonized for a moment. So powerful is this... Uh, this quality in the 
in the Buddhist tradition called sati, or mindfulness. Literally, immediate remembering. Or heedfulness, carefulness. Awareness, or observing power of mind. It's not an ordinary awareness. And uh, that's, again, one of the paradoxes of coming into a retreat with these ideas about what we're going to do and what we want to do and the thoughts that, that infiltrate our beginning of our practice or continue to arise in our practice. Because this awareness is a pre-verbal awareness. It isn't a thought kind of awareness. It's different than reflective awareness. Sometimes in practice, we, we offer or encourage um, certain reflective reminders, skillful reflection in practice. Or we use the mental labeling, for example. That's conceptual. Both of those are conceptual. But an actual moment of sati, of this special awareness, mindfulness, is before thought in the conceptual process. It's pre-symbolic. And that's what makes it very unusual and special because it's very hard then to describe it. Since once we ascribe thoughts to it, it just it steals it away. It just slips away like silver mercury between our fingers. It's not anything to do with the conceptual intellectual aspect of mind, of intellect. And for this very reason, it's why we are able to come to understand the very basic nature of mind and heart. How we can understand thoughts. How we can see what thoughts are. Not think what they are. How we can directly experience our bodies in our minds. Not think it, not describe it, not evaluate it. Interpret it. very kind of primal awareness uh, and it's always interesting to me to learn how many indigenous cultures very naturally had this kind of primal awareness certain 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 people within these indigenous cultures uh, certainly had this kind of awareness I mentioned the other night in a talk about the uh, navigators of old Hawaii that, uh, or old Polynesia, how they were able to move through the terrain of ocean uh, without any instruments was because they were so relaxed and alert as to be able to attune to natural systems. The systems of clouds and wind and ocean waves and currents, cycles of stars, moon, sun, and so forth. They all were a kind of map of where one was, where one and that was or stood in that moment in the universe, even in, this, in the changing environment of a sea, an ocean. And how they had to be so quiet and attune every door of perception Every one, the sights, sounds, smells, tastes, touch sensations of the body, and the, and the inner intellect, the intuitive intellect, 
sights, sounds, pretty obvious smells. Some of these shaman navigators uh, would could smell differences in the sea salt, determine whether they were in Tongan Ocean or Fijian Ocean, or by taste. And body, they would let themselves feel currents through the canoe at night, but there's storms and they can't see the stars. Feel currents and discern different kinds of waves. There's wind-whipped waves, there's local uh, trade wind, uh, uh, variable wind waves and trade wind waves. There's the currents themselves that cause chop in waves. There's what's called ground swells from storms thousands of miles away. And they try to find where the prevailing current was through the sensations in their bodies. The um, Aborigines of, and the indigenous peoples of South Africa also have learned from people who study them, and actually from one trip we had in Africa, how they learned to read the landscape through this pre-verbal awareness, that their senses are so attuned that they're not looking for anything conceptual. They're looking very directly for changes on the horizon, for changes in the landscape between light and shadow, color and form. So when Michelle and I were traveling between retreats as guests in, the, in, the, in a game reserve, this Botswani traveler or tracker, he kept finding all these, these amazing African animals who so perfectly camouflage themselves. You know, millions of years of, of uh, evolution make them blend so incredibly with the environment. I, I couldn't see them with binoculars. And this tracker was so relaxed, I didn't think he was really a tracker. He, he kept, but he kept finding the animals for us, and I thought, gee, he, he, you know, he knows where they live, and he's just taking us to where he knows that they already are, kind of like a Disneyland tour, <laughs> you know, or he's incredibly lucky. But he just kept doing that again and again, until, I, until we realized at the end that it was the very nature of him being so relaxed, that he wasn't looking for the particular animals of zebra, Impala, or uh, lion, giraffe, and so forth. That he just gaze with a soft focus, gaze the landscape, and notice shifts in, in the land that he was for him was an extension of himself. The same with the, the navigators in old Polynesia, that for them, the stars aren't out there, and the, the, the sounds of wind aren't out there, that it's as close as the eye and the ear. And so that the whole, the field of experience is simply an extension of their own heart-mind. So it's very, this incredible primal attunement, a primal awareness that's attuned at one with their surrounding. And so therefore, it, it all tells a story to them. The, the, the animal was seen before it was seen. That is, the movement was there, and then a thought comes. And then the label, then the concept, ah, oh, zebra, wildebeest, 
giraffe and so forth. At first it seems quite extraordinary, but I mean this is the blessing of, of retreat, of transformative space or sacred space. You know, once we dwell in it for a while, it seems the most natural and ordinary and right thing, you know, and people feel that feeling of, of being at home. It's nothing particularly strange and ordinary, it looks as, except compared with the, our very dulled senses, the strongly conditioned and colored doors of perception where everything is filtered through our likes or dislikes. Our, our senses are actually quite dulled in recent centuries. And so it just makes sense why, by, why those who still live in natural environments, you know, uh, in, in Africa or in Polynesia, in recent, up, up until recent centuries, and still a little bit here and there, uh, would have available this primary awareness, this natural attention and attunement to things. And so we come here to kind of cleanse those doors of perception and begin to learn again to, to relax and, uh, uh, and yet stay very alert, very attuned. The, the teaching, teachings of mindfulness are centered around four different ways of experiencing ourselves or the universe. The body, feelings, mind or consciousness, and all the uh, states of consciousness or elements of experience through consciousness. And we emphasize a lot starting and anchoring a lot on the body because it's a, such a, a tangible anchor. It's like being able to touch something solid, a table, a chair, the earth. And it's easy for conscious, for awareness to, uh, to stay in the present moment when we use or emphasize in the beginning a body and breath based awareness. More difficult to start with, uh, with mental phenomena, feelings and consciousness and so forth. But it's very, this practice is certainly sloping to be very inclusive of all of that. And the body is, the sensations of body, the category or foundation or frame of reference called feelings here means the, the, the affect or tone of each moment's experience of being pleasant or painful, pleasant or unpleasant or neither pleasant or unpleasant. And that's in regard to both bodily sensations and all the mental phenomena. Thoughts, emotions too, in a moment that they have that quality, in a moment's experience of being pleasant or unpleasant, or neither. <clears throat> and also through the how we experience the universe, through the sense doors. Every moment of seeing, if you look carefully, what it is that we're seeing may be is either pleasant or unpleasant, or neither. And hearing, smelling, tasting, all the doors of experience, feelings are present. Very important to notice because uh, when we're not mindful, pleasant feelings tend to condition attachment. Unpleasant 
feelings or experience when we're not being mindful tends to condition aversion or ill will in the mind. We push experience away. And neutral experience when we're not paying attention uh, tends to condition apathy or indifference or disconnection. Body feelings, the, the foundation called consciousness or mind is, well, at first it's just attuning to how a moment's consciousness uh, uh, is colored by various states. To make it very simple, either colored by three unhealthy roots or three healthy psychological roots. The unhealthy roots being uh, uh, greed or attachment, aversion or ill will, and delusion or ignorance. And the healthy roots being the opposite, generosity, loving-kindness or compassion, and wisdom. There are many states that come under any of these. So how we start to learn about our mind in the moment, because consciousness doesn't happen in a vacuum. Consciousness is experienced as it is toned or colored by one of these mind states, particular mind state. And then eventually we come to know consciousness as itself as a stream, a continuous changing stream. There's seeing consciousness that's arising and passing and hearing consciousness and sensing all the other senses and thinking or emotive consciousness. It too is a stream. Very valuable to begin to connect mindfully with the streamness of our experience because it begins to clue in our awareness and our wisdom to the nature of things as they are. That is, the more we start to know the, the streamness of things, how things are in constant flow, flux, change, process, the more we find the mind opening, the more we find there is a loosening of attachment in the mind. Because before we are attuned to that, <clears throat> there's just the constant attempt by our thought process to fix things, to solidify experience, inner and outer, and to use them as props for identification of ourselves, to, to fix ourselves as being so-and-so, and another person as being so-and-so, and all life as being such-and-such. Such. We fix things in a conceptual reality, that is ultimately not true. So the, the conceptual world is an important one of exchange and sharing and community, but it isn't the truth of things. And it's often where we get most entangled and find ourselves most suffering. So attunement to this streamness is very valuable. And then the fourth foundation after body, feelings, mind, or consciousness, is all the, uh, what's called dhammas, or uh, nature, things, all the contents of consciousness, where we, for example, very specifically go into the hindrances, or the awakening states, or the fields of experience that we, that we know as seeing or hearing, smelling, tasting, touch, and so forth, thinking, 
we, we bring an awareness to those fields and begin to know them as they are, free of the concepts about them, free of our thoughts about them. Begin to differentiate, at least, between the, the thought association, conceptual reality, and the very direct one. So, for example, back to the body. Uh, introduced body sensations this morning. We, we first feel, perhaps, the, we feel the form of the body. We feel the form of sitting, or the breath, perhaps, the form of the abdomen or chest. And it might be, it might be further illumined by um, a picture in the mind of that part of the body, or the picture in the mind of the body, or just a sense of the body as form. But then, quite soon, we start to notice more the particulars, the very unique elemental flow of experience that we call body. The elementals, in the traditional way, are labeled uh, fire, water, earth, and air. But very experientially, that means the way we experience temperature in the body, the whole spectrum between heat and cold. And, and water, that whole spectrum between fluidity, flowing sensations, uh, or cohesion. Because water has that cohesive binding effect. You know, you pour water into flour uh, to bind it and make cookies and bread and so forth. Water is that binding agent of all the other elements, but it's also the fluid one. And earth is that runs the spectrum between hardness and softness. Rough, pebbly, sandpapery, or smooth, silky, like cotton. It's how we experience the sense of, sense of extension. It's hardness is what we feel a lot when, we, uh, when, we're, when we're sitting or walking. Texture. And uh, uh, air is the spectrum of sensations between vibration or movement and support. Support is like the wind in the sail or air in a balloon. The air element, we feel a lot of air element and earth element when we walk and when, when we breathe. The air element being the support when you breathe out uh, and the vibrations that you feel are tingling and so forth. So we start very directly knowing the body and its elemental nature, not just like head or stomach or leg and so forth, or muscle or bone, but more into the hardness, softness, flowing, tingling, vibrations, pinpricks, throbbing, heat, twisting, very directly noticing these things. And something happens, something shifts with the practice because then uh, w when we start attuning to things as they are, when we start seeing things as they are, energy builds and interest builds, uh, and there's, uh, there's moments there where the mind feels very wide and awake. It's touching something inherent in our bodies, that is, that which is, things as they are. And we come out for a while of, of the lull, of the sleep, of the apathy, the indifference. 
So we notice two important things when we observe body, feelings, consciousness, and the contents of consciousness or experience or extension of consciousness. We notice both unique nature of body and mind. Unique nature means like the vibration, tingling, heat, uh, support, uprightness, and so forth. Uh, or unique in mind means uh, the unique nature of, of anger. It has a flavor and a texture. It separates, it divides, or it darkens, uh, or stings, however it might feel. Uh, and kindness, its opposite, is the feeling of connection, openness. And they, uh, and, and they also have feeling tones to them. One's, more, one's usually pleasant and one's unpleasant. Those are unique qualities to body and mind. And, and every mind state, every sensation has its uniqueness. It appears and disappears uh, uh, completely, utterly. The second, the second thing that we tune into besides unique nature in the mind and body is its universal nature. That, that, that it is all in process. All body, all mind states are continuously in process, in change. Not even for a moment do they remain the same. Something we may consider a lot conceptually, you know, and we perhaps have heard the adage that you can't put your hand in the same river for more than two, one second. As soon as we put your hand in the river, it's already a different river. But it's another thing to, with awareness and intuitive wisdom or understanding, to actually begin to experience that, the effect that it starts to have in opening the mind. Mindfulness is sometimes compared with a, a <clears throat> more superficial awareness to throwing a cork and a stone into a stream. The, the cork floats along the surface of the stream, <coughs> carried by the, 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 the eddies and the currents uh, and the, the downward flow of the stream, completely at the mercy of the flow of the stream. Whereas the, st the stone sinks right into the heart of the stream and knows the streamness from within the stream. Mindful, this quality of mindfulness is doing just that. It's going right into the heart of our experience each moment, a single breath which sometimes out of nowhere seems, may seem like the first, first breath ever actually fully experienced. Feeling that breath from within the breath. And something falls away, like our boredom or the aloofness to it or the uh, routinization of it. or Something falls away and it's like you've never experienced such a breath before or in the body, that sense of that awareness arising from within the body and knowing the body as it really is. Not our idea of it, not our judgment about it, our fear of it, our identification, our attachment to it, but just as it is, for a moment, for a very liberating moment, 
every moment that there's this pure connection with what is, this pure seeing with what it is, there's a shift, there's a little more opening in the mind. So we come, come here, uh, and at first it might be a little strange, you know, we have to give up, to give up a, a kind of freedom, to get up, give up what we do in our life, how we arrange our life and our day and our room and our uh, food situation and, you know, our bed, our pillows. And if we give up a lot <laughs> and we kind of surrender to reduce circumstances, limitations. But often it doesn't take long to to where we start to rejoice in that because there's so much about our outer lives that support our habitual way of seeing and, and hearing and, and viewing the universe. And we start to see and feel and sense and view it uh, in, a, in a much more direct and real way when we subscribe to these reduced uh, circumstances. We've spoken a lot about um, bringing a gentle quality to our practice. And that is, and that would be a mindfulness with a, a gentle tone or a relaxed tone to it. Combining that, re, that utter relaxation uh, with an energetic presence of mind. It's a, a favorite. Um, painting in a temple in this area of uh, Upper Burma, Sagain, uh, where I have been enjoyed spending a lot of time in recent years. It's in the temple of the famous Mengun Sayada, who passed away a few years ago. And there are pictures of him all around, in this circular way, you look around, and doing different things, different aspects of his life, with little um, sayings underneath it. So the one I like the most has the, the Mingun Saira. He's, I think he's probably going out to give a Dhamma talk or uh, going for a lunch, Dana somewhere, and the truck breaks down. And this is a this this is a remote area in Upper Burma. You can't push it down to the next corner to the Chevron station to get fixed. So they often carry their own tools and spare tires and whatnot and just hope for the best. You could be out there for five or six hours in some of those places before someone who can help comes by. So he was there actually all day. And the picture is of the, of the uh, car or truck uh, broken down. The hood is up and the driver and attendant, his head is under the hood like he's fixing on it. And the Mingun Saira is um, <clears throat> under a tree, a nearby tree in the shade. He's laying down in perfect repose. His hands are behind his head, just sort of observing the, the scene. And it's said that the, the Mingun Saira's little saying is that um, uh, that Whatever is happening in every moment, 
one can rest in mindfulness, something to that effect. <laughs> and it's just an utter picture of that combination of relaxation and presence. And he wasn't at all worried about <clears throat> not getting where he was supposed to go or being late or <clears throat> the problem at hand, but that any moment was an opportune moment to be mindful. Mindfulness wasn't something we reserve for anything special when we meditate. But it's something we live out of and something that we are. Often people want to, you know, feel, gee, it's such hard work. I just, I just need to take a break. But, but we come to see that the only real break is mindfulness. That that is the place to rest. And what feels like it had been strained is just wrong effort, striving too hard, you know, or dealing with a lot of pain or difficult emotions, and not yet finding where we can rest that mindfulness and regenerate, renew. What exactly is it that inhibits this natural awareness, this kind of primal, pre-verbal, pre-symbolic, attuned to things as they are, awareness? We, we don't have, the, we don't have the, the privilege, rarely anymore, to live in those kinds of environments of the wild, or at least not for very long, for most of us, in which it can come out. So we really need to rely on our, our patience and our resolve to see what it is that is blocking, that's inhibiting, that's embellishing our experience. What's described in, the, uh, in this practice, in the Buddhist psychology, as papancha, is what it is that we're up against when we don't have that open, utterly relaxed, energetically present quality of awareness. But pancha means uh, embellishment. It means ego proliferation. It means uh, self-referencing, uh, fabrication. It means everything that gets put on to the pure, pure initial experience, to exactly what happens in the moment of impression when we see, smell, hear, taste, touch, or even think. But very quickly, we embellish upon those initial thought moments or, or seeing or hearing moments. So that when you hear sounds like bell, or the birds outside, Initial impression and even initial attention is always the attunement to just sound vibration. Not to bell, not to bird. But as you might have noticed, even with the deepest mindfulness, even if you were able to note or sense or, or attune to that sound vibration, side by side with that may be little thoughts. 
can I keep, can I keep doing this? Can I stay with the sound vibration? You know, and just those thoughts interrupt. Or, you know, is that a Burmese bell or a Japanese bell? Or what's he ringing it for? Or what is this going to lead? What's the point? Or, you know, people were saying today they can't help but notice these birds. They, they, many people know the names of the birds. You know, others were saying that when they practice, they hear the sound of the bird and they have thoughts, oh, I'm glad I don't know the name of that bird, otherwise I'd be thinking about that bird. <laughs> it doesn't matter what, what we know already. The mind will just want to proliferate. It will want to dress things up and assess them. What happens from that initial impression is, the, is a, some kind of uh, concept will come up like bell, and then, or bird, and then constructs, more concepts, you know, as the thought begins to build and give and dress itself, flush itself out, and then, um, and, and then it comes interpretations, what it might mean, or schemes, what plans we have, or evaluations, interpretation, and like, and then dislike, so forth. Very quickly, this happens boom, 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 just like that. And that's why all of a sudden we're caught in the middle of a little melodrama, you know, thought sequence, judgments, and so forth. And that's where we try to bring in, right in the midst of that, a gentle uh, but awake uh, judging. Not a judgmental noticing, but a very non judgmental. I mean, it just, that's what's happening in that moment. Since everything is in constant flow, we haven't got stuck in concepts except by our own thought. So we just attune to, ah, thinking is happening, interpreting. What Papancha does, of course, is that it makes, <clears throat> we start living through all these interpretations and we start to relate to everything through interpretation. It all is a dream in that way. You can't see the moon for the clouds. But much of the, but our practice and what we're here for is the, the exposure, is the revelation of this papancha mind to see how that works. You know, what happens? Do you notice, do you pay attention when you walk out of the meditation hall and past the room and through the coat room and you come out, door there, you know, it's really, it's just so fun to watch. The IMS TV is up there. And as people start walking out, their body language is incredible. The head comes out, you know, like a turtle, <laughs> straining. And then, and then sometimes they pull it back in and turn, you know, but not so often. Well, say they go and look and look at the lists. <laughs> look at the changes, you know. It's like changing the channel of the IMS TV. There might be a new notice up there. And they, maybe just in the previous sitting, they had looked at what time their interview is, but they checked to see that it's still that time, <laughs> still in, you know, room 107, still with Kamala. Well, let's check and see what the, you know, what the latest news is here. And they go, you know, like turning then to CNN. Any announcements from staff? Any changes here? What we have to be careful of? This papancha mind 
based on it, builds our view of the world, including ourselves. And that conditions our values, which conditions our actions, until what we live is really around pretty continuous interpretation of ourselves, of others, uh, and of, of, all, of all life, not the authenticity of things. But when we come here to <clears throat> a retreat space and we begin to be able to let go of our agendas and expectations, try to, to surrender to the practice itself, and trust a lot. It takes a tremendous amount of trust to, to start letting go. And just being that a sensation just needs to be a sensation. You don't have to have a story around it. The sound can just be a sound. And, and even those moments of fear, terror, grief, sadness, can just be what they are. We can notice them and actually kind of reclaim the heart of them uh, f free of the story that they want to belong to, that it seems that they want to be attached to. At, at retreats I've done in the past, you know, when I'm going in for a long retreat, there's always this sense in me of, of apprehension of some sort. Many reasons for it, but among that is, you know, boy, this is difficult kind of work, and we really have to let go of uh, a lot to come in here. It's kind of scary. We have to let go of all the props, all the sense of security that gives us uh, some I identity that we hang our sense of self off of, our life, uh, our relationships, our work. Kind of come walk into the unknown. It takes a lot of courage. In fact, one of the, the meanings of, of energy, I said you know, back in the beginning that the samadhi group, the mind-heart development group of the three trainings of morality, meditation, and wisdom is composed of energy, mindfulness, and concentration. The energy, virya, literally means courageous energy. The courage of a hero or heroine. The courage of a bodhisattva. Because it takes tremendous amount of courage to go into the unknown, to let go of our familiar props. To be willing is a kind of risk. To relinquish everything and risk what it is that, that's there and what comes up. So I always feel these little apprehensions and sometimes they papancha around something. So I remember at one retreat, just something unresolved, and I went in with a lot of uh, kind of fear, fear and paranoia, and it was around some friends and, uh, and feeling of insecurity or anger or blame, and just all that messiness, that stickiness when things aren't clear, when they're confusing, and yet there's a strong emotion, like ill will or anger. And this, this shadow, the first days, even almost the first week of the retreat, I kept, I noticed that it was there, you know, fear. I noticed fear was there, but I just didn't want to get involved, you know, but yet the story was hanging all around. 
story was hanging all around, I just felt like it was a hindrance. I wanted to set it aside. Let's get on, let's crank up the samadhi, you know, <laughs> and, and get into some real stuff here. Anchor on this breath and watch some breaths. Maybe I should control the breathing a little bit, you know, and do some fast breathing or walk fast or, you know, make it happen. And, and it wouldn't. And so it, you know, things proliferated more and I just felt more of this intensity and even paranoia. And then the stories get, you know, what we call like yogi mind, you know, mountains out of molehills, little thing. And you invent this whole story against you, against yourself, or, you know, and you can get really paranoid that well that way. Um, uh, one, one yogi who, who uh, in this retreat in Australia where Michelle and I taught, just a simple thing, but there's a papancha mind. We came outside after the Dhamma talk and I walked to my room through the walking room uh, and Michelle walked outside looking at the moon and came in another door. And I thought she was behind me, so I went in my room and she came in the other door, and I said, oh, why'd you come in that door? She said, oh, well, you know, she said very softly, as she speaks, oh, well, I was watching the moon. But I said it a little louder, and I said it when I was still by the door I entered uh, from the walking room. And, and what I didn't know, what we didn't know, was that a yogi was walking in and thought I was talking to him. Why'd you come in that door? Which I didn't say not, you know, unnicely, I don't think. <laughs> and so we talked for a while, Michelle went up and went to bed. Three, three or four o'clock in the morning, there's a knock on the door. And Stephen, are you awake? <laughs> yeah, I'm awake, come on in. <laughs> what was wrong with me walking in that door? Uh, what? That's yogi mind, that's papancha to a, a large proportion. You know, the poor yogi for six or seven hours has just been freaking out. So, then in my retreat, I started to realize, you know, I'm just, something's wrong here. Because I, I can say anger, but what's, what's wrong? What's, what's not happening? I realized that I was recognizing the anger was there, but there wasn't this allowing it to be there. There wasn't the acceptance. There was resistance to it. I didn't want the anger. I wanted deep retreat. I wanted other things to be happening. I had this agenda. I didn't have time for anger. <laughs> Stupid. You know, there's it, there it is, right there. And all I had to do is, ah, oh, it's just anger. And then I could open to the anger. I could feel it, the texture in the mind. Ah, anger, ill will, you know, paranoia. And, and feel all the components of it, all the many facets of it. Uh, it's a curious thing how it affects the mind and consciousness. Powerful to, to come, to not have an agenda, to not need it to go away, to not blame it, judge it but only have the intention of understanding it, the awareness and understanding of it, and then to feel it in the body. All the ways that had contorted, you know, weighted the body or felt plates of pressure or contraction and so forth, and to go into that. 
And the very going into it, the very mindful investigation and feeling on the direct process level, the unique nature, the universal, how it changed. I just noticed that it wasn't one solid wall of anger. It actually was just many moments of anger. There'd be moments where there was no anger. You know, then I'd think the story again and, oh, yeah, you know, get really angry again. They did this or I'm going to do that. And, and then again I'd watch and notice thinking and notice the story part, thinking, imagining, seeing, remembering, and so forth, and get back right to the, the, the direct mood, the mental mood itself, anger, of ill will, of paranoia, and anchor again in the body. Come back to the breath. And feel the whole experience. In the process of that investigation, there, it's, it's the nature of mindfulness to disidentify. That is, anger does not longer, any longer feel like the core of my being. It's just, it becomes just anger. Like suddenly, the moon is seen through the clouds. Like the anger was just a cloud, not the sky. When we're unable to see things clearly, when, when we're unable to see things as they are, then it means, of course, that reality is obscured. We're living the interpretation. We're in, in, in living the dream. And it's almost certain that that is the condition for attachment to arise. That we will, we will be clinging to experience in some way. Clinging to it in the sense of of wanting to get rid of experience or control it, needing it to happen a certain way, or we want it to keep it if it's pleasant and so forth. But in some way, we'll, experience will be distorted and that is the conditioning of attachment in the mind. Whereas if there's this willingness to open to everything and particularly to look for where experience does not feel okay, because where it does not feel okay, that's usually a signal that there is a hidden object. And that hidden object is the resistance to what is happening. So in the case of that fear, what I didn't see was that I had this aversion for it. I didn't want to be bothered with it at some points. And at other points, the resistance was I wanted something else to be happening. That's a resistance too. Any agenda whatsoever other than opening entirely to what's there, is a form of not opening to that present moment's experience. And there cannot be the disidentification then. There will be just the opposite, identification, attachment, aversion. So we look when we feel, ah, oh, this, this doesn't feel okay. We look, oh, there must be a hidden object. And we kind of, it's like going a little bit under the skin and, and, and feeling for some other sensation. Really a mental one, of course, but we actually might connect with it through the body. A, a, a general veneer of oppression or resistance. And that might, ah, oh, yeah, I don't like this, or I'm afraid of this, or I'm unwilling to open to it. And then after working with that resistance state, we can go more into, 
what's really happening. Maybe it's just the pain in the knee that we're afraid to feel that pain. Or a mental state or emotion. The whole experience then changes. And maybe we can't go into it for a while. Resistances sometimes are, are very important messages. Maybe we have to anchor somewhere else. Back in the primary anchor of the breath or body or something neutral like sounds. That's okay too. As long as there's an awareness and the, and, the, and the retreat from experience is a mindful retreat, not a reactive retreat, where we're repressing or ignoring or shutting down, but just realizing, can't open to this right now. But recognition is crucial because we're bringing wisdom in. We're bringing awareness in. We're not cultivating ignorance. We're not still maintaining the dream or the interpretation. So it's, it's out of time. I'm going to just tell a story, end with a story, a Jataka story, that might help uh, how we approach our experience. Jataka stories are all about us. Jataka stories are about the bodhisattva, that is the Buddha-to-be in his former lives. But they're really all about ourselves. And this one helps us learn to approach our experience uh, gently, with trust. Once the bodhisattva was born as a ox. And he was given in repayment to a poor Brahmin farmer. <clears throat> and the poor Brahmin farmer loved this ox. It brought him so much joy that he named him Great Joy. And Great Joy grew up big and strong, so strong that he could move the biggest boulders and uproot the stumps so that the poor farmer could, uh, could do his farming. And he was so powerful. And yet, he was so compassionate and gentle that the village children would come out and ride on his back. And they'd play together. Well, great joy in years to come. So appreciated the generosity of the Brahmin farmer. He's, one day he came in, stuck his head through the uh, uh, painless window and, uh, and said to his friend, the Brahmin, who was sitting at the table drinking some chai, some Indian tea, said, my friend. And he spilled his tea. The poor Brahmin spilled his tea. He said, what? I have an ox who can talk? You know, couldn't believe it. Spilled it all over his white Indian dhoti. And the, and the great joy said, no, never mind. You know, yeah, I can talk. But there's more wondrous things in this in the universe. Listen, this is what I want you to do. I want to help you. You've been so kind and you're a good person. I want you to run into the village. I want you to find a wealthy merchant and bet him a thousand pieces of money that I can pull, let's see, tell him I can pull 100 carts filled to the brim of rocks and boulders and stones around the village. The poor Brahmin thought, what? Wait a minute now. Maybe you can talk, but I don't think you can do anything like that. Trust me, said Great Joy. Have I ever lied to you? <laughs> well, you haven't even talked to me before this, but this is strange enough, but okay, I'll trust you. And he ran in, found a wealthy merchant in the tea shop, had another cup of tea, and said, I have, a, I have an ox, really a strong ox. And the merchant said, well, it's the nature of oxes to be strong. I have 20 of them, so what? 
And the, and the poor Brahmin said, well, but mine is really strong. You wouldn't believe how strong he is. Mine, can, mine could pull 20 carts of stones around the village square. Everything has its limitations, said the merchant. No ox can do that, not even yours, not even all 20 of mine. Mine can, Brahman said. No, it can't, said the merchant. Yes, it can, and I'll bet you a thousand pieces of money. You're on, said the merchant. You have the ox here in the morning when the light touches the top of the tallest mango tree in the village square. I'll arrange for the carts. Okay, they shook out it and he went home. But then he began to think, gee, you know, a thousand pieces of money, that's all I have. It's taken me 50 years to, to save up for this. And, and uh, you know, I don't, it's, what have I done? I feel really weird that I made this promise. And so he went to sleep, but he didn't sleep very well. He tossed and he turned. He had bad dreams, nightmares. You know, he dreamt of all the times in his life that he ever lost anything. And, uh, you know, that people criticized him or made fun of him or made him feel like a fool. And he woke up feeling uh, bad, really bad. And he went into the stall outside and there was great joy, just cruising, you know, swinging his tail like, you know, what's up? What's the big deal? Let's go. Let's go have fun. <laughs> but the farmer was, he was upset. He just, you know, lost his sense of trust and confidence. And he just said, you know, come on. And he put a rope on him and they pulled him, yanked him into the village. He got into the village and he was stunned to see everyone turned out, the whole village. And he was just scared, but he put on this front, said, oh, okay, I can do this. And the merchants had the, the uh, yoke put on great joy and the, and the cart connected with him, with the 99 other carts. And okay, gave the signal, let's do it. And the Brahmin went up he was so scared now and embarrassed and disconnected from himself and great joy and untrustful. Uh, he walked up to his friend, his beloved great joy, took a switch, whacked him in the shoulder and said, all right, you beast, you brute, you, you know, you wretch, do it. Show them that you can do it. Go. Great joy thought, wretch is it? Beast is it? I'm not moving. <laughs> and he just sort of screwed in his hoofs deep into the earth, you know, like, like oak trees, <coughs> digging in. I'm not moving. Finally, out of embarrassment, the farmer conceded, and they went home. Didn't say a word. Farmer started to weep on the kitchen table. Great joy came up and stuck his head again through the window. You know, his horns above framing the poor Brahmin and said, my friend, why do you weep? Why do I weep? I've lost my whole little savings. You've made a fool of me. I believed you. You know, you betrayed me. Why do you think I weep? And with this compassionate, loving, honey-sweet voice, great joy said, who is it that betrayed whom? Did I ever once not do what you wanted, you know, what you needed from me? You know, did I ever uh, not move the stones, great boulders, or the tree trunks, or did I ever dirty the front of your house, or hurt one of the children, or break a water pot? 
Is there any way that I ever really betrayed you? Well, no, said the poor Brahmin. Well, was it you who didn't believe in me and you who didn't believe in yourself? When you called me wretch, when, you're, when you cut your heart off from me and yourself this morning. So some tears began to roll down the cheeks of the farmer and he said, you're right. I stopped believing in you and in me. I got afraid. I'm sorry. Well, that's okay. This is what I want you to do then. <laughs> I want you to run back in. I want you to find the, the merchant and bet 2,000 pieces of money and we'll be there in the morning. And he did. And he found them and they made the bet. And he came home that night and he felt different. He felt connected again. And he went and he stroked down great joy and he went to bed and he had wonderful dreams and felt all the times in which his friends loved him and affirmed him and when he found things and when he was believed and trusted and he woke up feeling superb and went out and there was great joy shining like this electric energy as the, uh, as the sun was coming up and, and reflecting off his golden hide. And they walked in this time to the village and uh, he seemed so much larger and more real than, than ever that his horns like, hooked the mist of the morning that was rising. And they got there just as the sun was touching the tallest mango tree. And the, and the poor Brahmin said to the uh, merchant, all right, hook them up and let's, let's get on with it. And they hooked them up and then he walked up to his beloved great joy the farmer, and he put a, a garland, a lay, flower lay around him, hugged him and said, okay, my friend, my companion, show them your great strength and your great compassion. Great joy said, all right. And he took a little step and the cart moved behind him and then the next cart and then all 98 other carts. And he took another step and he went into a small little trot, and then a canter, and then a gallop. And he went wailing around the whole village circle, you know, with, until there was a trench around it. And people this time were flowing, flowing, uh, uh, throwing flowers into the air, and, and messages of love and care and kindness. And when it was over and he was paid, they walked home together this time, but in a very different place, feeling deeply connected self-respect, integrity, renewed love and trust between the two of them. Of course, both the Brahmin farmer and great joy and all the other beings, the story, live within us. And great joy is the one we want to listen to and care for during our practice. Let's sit for a moment. <coughs> May we learn to trust in ourselves and the practice, to be 
carried by the practice itself, by the Dhamma. Just relaxing in the moment, letting experience itself do the work. Let things just come up in their own way to be illumined by awareness. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.